For our time together this morning, we will continue our verse-by-verse study of the book of Matthew. And so you can go ahead and make your way there if you haven't already. Today, uh, we will be finishing chapter 27 uh, this morning. And as we, as we look at the events of that, that transpired after the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. Hey, Joe, I'm a little bit high. Can you turn me down just a little bit? I'm getting a little soapboxy, I think. All right. Um, today's message, we're going to look at the... Oh, that's a little bit better. Thanks, Joe. Uh, we're going to be looking at the effect that Jesus' death uh, upon the cross had upon not only the people there in attendance, but also upon the earth itself. And so uh, I'm looking forward to just getting into it, uh, the text with you this morning. So let's go ahead and stand together uh, as we read this morning's text. I'm going to read verses 51 through 66. Again, we're in Matthew chapter 27. I'm reading from the New King James Version, and I know that uh, not everyone has the same translation as me, and so uh, do your best to follow along as I read through this morning's text. Okay, Matthew chapter 27 beginning in verse 51. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Verse 57. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray that you would lead and guide us through it. Father, we want to lift up to you uh, the Martin family. We pray for Millie as she's there in the hospital. We pray you be with her. And I know there's a lot of people who have been sick. Uh, We pray for the Toma family as they're homesick, uh, Roy and Nancy. Uh, We pray your blessings would be upon them. Bring about just a healing. And I know uh, we've got a lot of family uh, that's sick too. And so we pray you just have your hand upon them. Lord, for those that can't be here with us, we pray you'd minister to them uh, as they're home, getting rest. 
Father, for us here in this place this morning, I pray that we will all come with an anticipation and an expectation that you're going to speak to us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the time that we've already spent with you in worship, and we look forward to the continued time of your Spirit leading us through your Word. Open up our eyes and open up our mind and our hearts to receive all that you have for us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. Verse 51, uh, going back, looking at it, it, it begins, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And we'll pause right there, we'll stop. And the veil mentioned here is the veil that was hung in the temple in a very important place. Uh, it is very rich with meaning and symbolism. And so we're going to take some time to kind of to, to set the scene and, and to understand just exactly what this veil being torn means and what it represents for us. Okay? The use of this veil in the temple can be traced all the way back to Moses in the book of Exodus uh, when God gave very specific instructions concerning the construction of the tabernacle. Hey, remember that the tabernacle uh, was a tent and uh, they would set it up and tear it down as they would travel uh, through the desert. And, and it was a, like, kind of like a traveling temple, a traveling sanctuary of sorts, this tabernacle. And according to the book of Exodus, this veil was to be woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. linen okay? Also, it was to have cherubim woven into it for artistic design. Uh, it was to be hung up on the inside of the tabernacle, and it was used as a partition, to divide the tabernacle into two parts. Okay? There was the holy place, and then there was the most holy. All right? On one side of the veil, the side referred to as the holy place, uh, would be the, the table of showbread, okay? uh, the, lamp, the golden lampstand, as well as uh, the altar of incense. Okay? Now, who knows what would be on the other side of the veil, the place that's called the most holy? Anybody? The Ark of the Covenant, the high priest would be allowed to go in there. Very good. The Ark of the Covenant, though, is what was the, the, the physical uh, piece that was there. <clears throat> uh, and, and what three things were placed in the Ark of the Covenant? Anybody know that? Aaron's staff. Aaron's staff's one. Ten Commandments. And manna. And manna. Very good. She's, we get some Bible points over there. All right. <laughs> the, on top of the Ark... Okay, there was a lid cover that's called the mercy seat. Sometimes it's referred to as the bema seat. Okay, but it's this mercy seat. It sat upon the top of the ark. It had two golden cherubim uh, on opposite sides that faced each other, whose wings spread out over the mercy seat. I found a picture. I think we have a picture. Okay, this is uh, one representation of what the ark may have uh, looked like with the uh, mercy seat uh, on top of it. You'll see uh, these cherubim figures with their wings uh, laying over across the top of the lid there. It was uh, made out of acacia wood, but it was completely overlaid with gold. And so uh, a very important piece uh, uh, of, I don't want to even say furniture, uh, but a very important piece uh, in the worship of the Israelites. Okay, The mercy seat 
okay, is where God would appear to Moses and speak to him regarding everything that the Lord would command for the children of Israel. Okay, And so entering into the most holy place was symbolic of entering into the very presence of God. Okay? The partition that the veil created was extremely important. The most holy place, and sometimes it's called the Holy of Holies. You may have heard it called that before. Uh, both are, are interchangeable. Okay? Um, it was off limits to nearly everyone. Okay? Outside of Moses, okay, who had a very special relationship with the Lord, he can talk to as one talks face to face, a very special uh, relationship Moses had. But outside of Moses, only Aaron... Okay, and subsequent to him, the high priest was allowed to pass through this veil and enter into the most holy place. Okay, and no one else was ever permitted to enter into the most holy place. And added to this restriction okay, was that they were only permitted to enter into the most holy place one day out of the entire year. Okay? Anybody know what that day is? I'm looking for Bible point over here. No? No? Jewish holiday, it's the, the Day of Atonement, okay, Yom Kippur. Uh, the only day that they would be allowed to enter in uh, to the most holy place. Okay? If they entered in at any other time, they would do so under the penalty of death, Leviticus 16, verse 2 tells us. Okay? And so you can read all about the Day of Atonement and Yom Kippur and Leviticus 16 if you want to do that. We don't have time to go into it all today. But I'll give you just a basic idea. The basic idea of the Day of Atonement was that the high priest would offer a series of sacrifices and take the blood of those sacrifices into the most holy place. And he would, at, that place, at that time, he would sprinkle the blood of these sacrifices upon the mercy seat and around the Ark of the Covenant. Okay? And it was the blood of these sacrifices upon the mercy seat uh, that the... Uh, excuse me. It was through the sprinkling of the blood of sacrifices the priests would make atonement for the children of Israel and for all their sins. That's why they call it the Day of Atonement. And so once a year they would come and the high priest would go in there and make atonement for the sins of Israel, the sins of the nation. Okay? All right. The use of the veil would be employed in the subsequent versions of the temple that would take place of the tabernacle. So the tabernacle was the first thing, but after the tabernacle, they had uh, the temple was built, or Solomon's temple, and even Herod's temple would have this veil in place. Okay? The fact that this veil was torn in two from top to bottom is very significant. Okay? Remember that the veil served as a barrier between the presence of the Lord and His people. In Herod's temple, the veil was said to be 60 feet in length. It reached from the floor to the ceiling 60 feet high. Okay? The fact that it was torn from top to bottom pictures for us that it was not torn from the hands of men from the ground up, but rather that it was torn from God Himself, that He had reached down from heaven, and he tore the veil from top to bottom. Okay? The veil which had symbolized the barrier between man and God for hundreds of years had been rent in two by God. Very significant. Okay? A way had been made for sinful man to enter into the presence of God. 
no longer would entering into the presence of God be restricted to once a year for the high priest alone. Okay? And that's interesting. If you want to read some good commentary on uh, this veil being torn, just look to the book of Hebrews. Okay? Hebrews has a lot of great information about it. The book of Hebrews gives a great commentary. Uh, the author of Hebrews tells us that the veil was symbolic. Okay? And the tearing of the veil was a picture of Jesus Christ's body. Okay? Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22, I'll read to you. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which He consecrated for us through the veil that is His flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Okay, And so we see the law concerning the Day of Atonement and the entering into the most holy place and even the sprinkling of the blood upon the mercy seat, they were all shadows of things that were yet to come. Okay, shadows of things that were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, it reads this. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Okay? The blood of bulls and the blood of the goats that were sprinkled year after year after year on the Day of Atonement were not sufficient to take away the sins of the people. Okay? But the blood of the Lamb of God that was poured out upon the cross of Calvary was more than sufficient. When His body was ripped apart upon the cross, so too was the veil. The old veil, it was just a shadow of the body of Jesus Christ. And the torn veil pictured for us His broken body. And so as they saw this veil, uh, I imagine, you know, I... I imagine there was priests there. It was a very busy day, right? It's the Passover, okay? I imagine, I, I, I can't even really imagine. I try to imagine. What would be the looks on these guys' faces who were never even allowed or permitted to even go there and to yet to have the, the, the veil rent in two and there it is, the Ark of, well, the Ark of the Covenant wouldn't be there. But the whole Holy of Holies was there. That's a different story, a different account. If you're interested, we'll talk later. But... How amazing it would have been. How fearful and awe-empowering uh, it had to have been for the priests uh, that were there when that veil was torn into. Access to the presence of God is now made open to all because of the broken body of Jesus Christ. And, and Hebrews tells us that we can now come boldly into the presence of God. Okay? The, the blood of Christ has cleansed us The veil has been torn. No longer is the most holy place for the high priest alone. Any person who believes upon the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross can boldly come into the presence of God at any time and at any place. 
And the tearing of the veil, it tells us that. This is what it teaches us. As we look at the cross and we look at the effect uh, thereafter, this is what the torn veil teaches us. That access to the presence of God has been granted to all. Okay? Through the broken body of Jesus Christ. Okay? No longer just the high priest. No longer just once a year. But any day, anyone in faith can come into the presence of God. What a beautiful truth for us. All right, well, let's continue. Verse 51, it continues, and it says, The veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. Okay, accompanying the, the torn veil was an earthquake. Uh, how great of an earthquake? We don't know. Okay, I, I'm sure that it was big enough for all to feel and for all to take notice. Okay, what exactly did the earthquake mean? Well, again, the Bible really doesn't tell us. It's interesting, the veil, we've got commentary in Hebrews that tells us all about what the torn veil represents. But we don't have any reference to what the earthquake meant. Okay? There are uh, several mentions uh, of earthquakes within the Bible. Some are more prominent uh, than others. Some commentators uh, actually link this earthquake that occurred after Jesus died upon the cross with the earthquake that occurred upon Mount Sinai, which our kids are learning about this morning in uh, Sunday school class. Okay? Uh, when God covered Mount Sinai with smoke and descended upon the mountain to speak with Moses and deliver to him the law, the scriptures say that the whole mountain quaked greatly. Okay? And, and these commentators, they associate the earthquake on Mount Sinai with the delivery of the law, and then they associate the earthquake on Calvary with the fulfillment of the law through Jesus' crucifixion. Now, whether or not this earthquake was intended by the Lord to show that His law had been fulfilled cannot be said for certain. Uh, it's speculation. It's a theory. Uh, it's possible. It's certainly interesting to consider. We do know. Excuse me. We do know that Jesus is Christ. Jesus Christ's work upon the cross was a fulfillment of the law. Matthew writes that Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but He came to fulfill the law. Okay. What do we know about the earthquake? Okay, is the, what details are we're given? We're, we know that the earthquake was strong enough to split rocks. Okay? Not just any rock. The Greek word here is petra, which means a large mass of rock, like a cliffside or a hillside, uh, a solid piece of rock being split. And it's interesting to consider the significance of these rock, large rock formations splitting open. Okay? It's, uh, it's as if nature itself was shaken and crying out at the great atrocity of killing the very Son of God. Jesus previously, during his triumphal entry, you guys may recall when we were studying through the book of, of Matthew, we highlighted uh, Luke's gospel when we studied the triumphal entry. And, and it was during the triumphal entry when re, he was requested by the tree, chief priest to have the people cease crying out. They were crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. And he says, hey, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to... Put a sock in it, basically. That's my paraphrase. Okay? And, and do you guys remember what he said? That's right. He said, he said that the stones themselves would immediately cry out. Okay? And Matthew Henry in his commentary suggested that this is in fact what was happening at this time. The rocks cried out, proclaiming the glory of the suffering Christ, and that the rocks themselves were more sensible of the wrong done him than the hard-hearted Jews. 
Charles Spurgeon, the famous British preacher, echoed Matthew Henry's thoughts when he declared, Men's hearts did not respond to the agonizing cries of the dying Redeemer, but the rocks responded. The rocks were rent. He did not die for rocks, yet rocks were more tender than the hearts of men for whom he did shed his blood. At the very least, what we can say confidently about this earthquake is that the earthquake was a, a part of creation that testified to the fact that Jesus was who he says he was, that he was sent by God, that he was and he is the Son of God. Well, another very interesting thing happened that many of you are probably wondering about. When we read through it, you kind of started scratching your head and thought, this ought to be interesting. This is one of those times when you kind of don't wish you did verse by verse because you just skip over it and say, I'm not going to talk about that. But let's look at these next two verses. <laughs> Verses 52 and 53. And it says, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. What in the world is going on? Okay, Kind of crazy. I, I think maybe on my mind, because I've seen too many, you know, Bad movies, you know, you got like zombie pictures in your mind. Okay, let's try and start fresh and not have that kind of idea here. Let's go through and see just exactly what is happening here. Okay. Unfortunately, I'll start right off the bat. Unfortunately, these verses create a whole lot more questions than they do answers. And so as you think of this, as you look at this, you may ask, who, who were these saints? And, and what did they look like? Did they have new glorified bodies? Were their, their bodies physical bodies, like real humans? Or, or were they some kind of like ghost or phantom or something like that? Uh, could they appear and disappear wherever they liked? Were they people that others would recognize? What did they say to the others when they came into Jerusalem? How many people did they appear to? What was the response of those people as they saw? Okay, a lot of questions. And we don't have any answers to any of those questions. Uh, frankly, the Bible doesn't give us a whole lot to go on here. Of the four gospel accounts, Matthew is the only one to mention these risen saints. Okay? And he doesn't give a whole lot of details. He just speaks rather matter-of-factly that this happened, and, and that's about it. So what do we know, and what can we gather from this incident? Well, let's look a little at what Matthew does tell us. Okay? Before we do that, though, I do want to make a disclaimer. Okay, one more disclaimer. Okay? Anybody reading from the NIV here this morning? It's okay. You can raise your hand. I won't call on you or make, you know, say anything. Okay? All right. Very good. The NIV version reads a little different than many of the other versions. Okay? I checked six different translations that I checked. The NIV was the only one that read differently. Uh, the NIV, as you read uh, verses 52 and 53, clearly states that the bodies were raised to life and came up out of the grave prior to Jesus' resurrection. Okay? All the other translations, they portray the graves being open at this time, but the bodies did not rise or exit the grave until after Jesus' resurrection. Okay? This may not be that big of a deal, but I think that it does take away from one possibility of meaning if the bodies rose from the grave before Jesus' uh, resurrection, And I'll explain that. Uh, but first, let's look at what facts are given to us. The graves were open. 
Okay, uh, The Greek word here written as grave appears 42 times in the New King James Version. It's translated as tombs, 37 of those 42 times. In those days, tombs uh, were often hewn out of hillsides or uh, rock caverns or caves. Okay? And when we read that the graves opened up, don't think of it as if the ground opened up six feet deep and there's a casket lying there in the ground. That's not what is being portrayed or being talked about here when it talks about the graves being opened up. Okay? The tombs opening up were more than likely rock tombs hewn out of hillsides or caves that had split open along with a lot of the other rock that was splitting as a result of the earthquake. Okay? Jesus spoke about these graves before when he pronounced woes upon the scribes and Pharisees for building up and adorning the tombs of the prophets. And they would be uh, these monument-like structures, okay? not just a, a headstone buried in the ground. Okay? Anybody, I know a lot of you guys have been to Okinawa, right? I lived in Okinawa for 10 plus years. Okay? And if you ever get off the base at all on Okinawa, you will no doubt come across some of the Hakka tombs. Okay? Hakka is Japanese for tombs. And uh, some of the haka in Okinawa, they are quite large. Okay? And some of them are really beautiful. They're actually made out of marble and really fancy looking. Um, and they actually, uh, Okinawans will go out once a year to, to clean up and they will beautify these tombs. Okay? And, and what you see in Okinawa is more like what is being described here. Outward monuments or, or hewn out caves that have been opened up. Oftentimes those haka tombs, they would be along a hillside or uh, in, uh, up against uh, a cliff of some sort. And so if you've been there, you kind of have maybe a better visual picture of what is being described here. Okay? All right. Many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. How many? We don't know. Okay? Uh, it was many, it just says. Who were they? They were saints. Okay? Now, now that word carries with it different connotations depending on what you've been taught previously. Okay? The word say, saint in this context and in most every biblical context simply means something or more specifically someone that is holy, set apart, sanctified, or, or consecrated. Okay? The, this word is used to describe all who are purified and sanctified by the influences of the Spirit of God. Thus, all believers, okay, you and I, every believer, uh, would be considered to be saints. Okay? You and I are, are saints if we've been purified of our sins by the blood of Jesus Christ. We've been set apart. Okay? We are saints. Okay? Some faith groups... Uh, use this word as a description of believers of extraordinary or, or heroic virtue uh, who, who stand out amongst all other believers as especially worthy uh, to be followed. And they'll be given titles uh, as of saints. Okay? This, however, is not a, a biblical practice. Okay? You don't find this example in the Bible anywhere. Everybody, all believers were called saints. Okay? It wasn't just... Um, St. Peter, and he's way better than everybody else, uh, it, it was, we're all saints. Uh, we've all been consecrated. Okay? Uh, the practice of acknowledging great men and women of faith as saints started well after the first century church. And so uh, if you th brought up one way thinking saints, these are saints, and you think of, all oh, these must be great, you know, that's not what it means. Okay? These saints, they're described as having fallen asleep. The, t the term fallen asleep was a euphemism. Okay, a euphemism is a big fancy word to mean uh, basically kind of saying something 
in a nice way that describes something kind of more harsh or, or you know, hard to swallow kind of thing. And so this was a euphemism, euphemism for having died. And so these people uh, had died. Okay? When or how long it was since they died, we don't know. These saints were raised, meaning that they were brought back to life. And they came out of the graves. They exited the caves or or the monuments that had been opened up during the earthquake. And we're given a time marker here as well. That these things happened after, in my translation, New King James Version says, after his resurrection. The his, uh, in my Bible's capitalized, it's referring to the resurrection of Jesus Christ that would take place on Sunday morning. So here we have an event that is described as beginning on Friday at the death of Jesus Christ, but finishing on Sunday after the resurrection of Jesus. Okay? And the exact timeline of these events is debated, and that's why the NIV Bible reads differently than many of the other versions. Okay? Uh, some hold to the idea that the graves were open, the bodies were raised, and they exited the grave all on Friday, prior to Jesus' resurrection. And then that wasn't until Sunday after the resurrection that they entered into the city and appeared to many people. Others hold to the view that the graves were uh, opened on Friday, but that the bodies were raised and they exited the grave and went into the city all on Sunday after Jesus' resurrection. And still others, they actually hold kind of a hybrid view uh, point. Uh, that uh, the graves were open and the bodies were raised on Friday, but they didn't leave the grave or they didn't exit the, their tombs until uh, after the uh, resurrection. And, and that's when they went in, exiting the tombs and went into the city, which is correct. I honestly don't know. Okay? Sometimes you do Bible study and you just have to say, I don't know. The Bible doesn't really give us all the answers. Okay. I am under the persuasion that it was only the graves that were opened on Friday and that it was after the resurrection that these saints were also then resurrected and they subsequently departed from their tombs and went into the city. As we look at this very bizarre event that took place, what does it teach us? What does it demonstrate or, or symbolize for us? Two things, I believe. One is that the open graves uh, and and even the resurrected saints, they show to us the power of the cross to claim victory over death. The graves is a symbol of death, a picture of death. That The the graves would be opened up is a picture of God's victory, Jesus' victory, namely over death. By dying on the cross, Jesus was able to wage warfare with death, ultimately conquering it and resurrecting over it come Sunday morning. Okay. Second thing that I think that this teaches us. Okay. The resurrected bodies of the saints give to us a proof in the afterlife and that we too will share in a future resurrection. I, I do believe that the bodies of these saints were resurrected after Jesus' resurrections. One of the reasons that I believe that is based upon what 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches us. And so if you want to turn there, you can, but I have the verses up here on the overhead. Christ uh, in Excuse me, 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 23, it says, Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, 
Even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. Afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Christ is called the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. Uh, a, a euphemism for, for those who have died. Okay? He was the first to be resurrected to a new eternal life. Okay? Other people in the Bible, they uh, were brought back to life. Okay? But they would die again. Okay? This resurrection of Jesus Christ, He is the one that is to eternity. Okay? And so that's what makes it unique. It makes it different. Okay? If these saints were resurrected before Christ, then the idea of Jesus being the first fruits doesn't fit so much. And so that's why I, I lean towards the idea that the graves were opened on Friday, but the lives were not resurrected or uh, exited the tombs until after Jesus' Christ, Jesus Christ's resurrection. Okay? If these did rise after the resurrection, then they become a proof for us that this will one day happen for us as well. That we will have life after death. And so it's a very important picture, a very important promise. As we see, Jesus Christ, after his resurrection, would lead these people uh, into life, bringing new life to them. Okay? Now, do we know for sure that's what it is? I'm not so certain. It's very a bizarre uh, scene. But that's what I believe. And I, I think... Um, based upon 1 Corinthians 15, then that's probably accurate. But I, a lot of great Bible thinkers and scholars think the other way. And so if you think the other way, that's okay. okay? It's not a foundational issue. It's not a um, pillar of our faith, whether you think it happened on Friday or Sunday. Okay? All right. For sake of time, we're going to continue in our text. If you have questions about these verses, would like to discuss them, I'd love to do so after service. Uh, as I mentioned, these verses do give uh, way to way more questions than they do answers, but I'd love to talk it over with you. And so uh, if that's something that interests you, let me know. Verse 54. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. A centurion, as many of you know, was a Roman officer that oversaw a group of a hundred soldiers. This particular centurion was part of a group of soldiers that were guarding the body of Jesus. Now, during a crucifixion, it would be normal for soldiers to stand guard over those being crucified to prevent anyone from trying to come and take the body off of the cross. And so these people were, were prisoners. They were condemned men uh, being uh, punished through execution. And so they would have guards there to prevent anybody from interfering with what was going on. And as a centurion and those with him witnessed the strange events of the day, it had a profound effect upon them, and specifically upon this centurion. Try to imagine for yourself what they are witnessing. The scourging, although extremely brutal, it was not uncommon. And even the crucifixion, it was not an uncommon thing. What stood out to them? They were there to hear all the words that Jesus declared from the cross. They heard him say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The fact that darkness fell over the land for three hours, and then shortly after the, the sunlight reappeared, Jesus cried out, and is finished. And he died, giving up his spirit. And at that time, the earth shook violently. The graves opened up. 
And it tells us that they feared greatly. Previously, we mentioned how, how the earthquake was creation's way of testifying of who Christ was and the atrocity of the crime that had been committed. And although the Jewish leaders were too hard-hearted and blind to understand the testimony of creation, it spoke loud and clear to this Roman centurion. After hearing the words of Jesus and seeing the events that transpired that day, the only conclusion this Roman centurion could come to was truly this was the Son of God. It's interesting because if you think of, uh, of these men, this Roman centurion and the men that he is worth, recall it, these very men had joined in with the mockery of others. They mockingly called him the king of the Jews, and you'll recall that it was them that placed the crown of thorns upon his head, and it was them that placed the reed in his hand and mockingly bowed down before him. And then they would take that reed and they would strike him upon the head with that reed, driving the thorns of the crown uh, deeper into his scalp. And I imagine their own actions added to the great sense of fear that they were feeling. As creation testified more and more that this indeed was the Son of God, I imagine the fear of having reviled the Son of God of having mocked him and beaten him, uh, began to create with them a guilt that only amplified their fear. Could you imagine as you start to realize, this guy really was who he said he was. And I was just doing what I was doing to him. And look what's happening. The, the, The creation, the earth is quaking. Rocks are splitting. There would be a great sense of, oh, My, what did I get myself into? Type of a feeling, I imagine. The darkness, the ground shaking, the rock splitting, and the fear of retribution on behalf of God all added up together to bring them to a place of breaking, a place of just surrender and humility. And as I consider the effect that the cross had upon the centurion, I am reminded of something that I think is very important. I am reminded that there are none that are beyond the reach of the Lord. This man that once reviled and beat the Son of God had been churned by the testimony of creation and was broken in awe and reverence of who the Lord really was. No one is beyond the reach of the Spirit of God. If this Roman centurion who just hours previously had mocked and beaten the Lord could be churned to an understanding of who God is and what he had done, so can anyone else. None of us are, are you know, we have, I'm sure most of you know someone or you have friends or you have relatives or you have coworkers that you just feel like, man, they are as hard as hard can be. They are beyond the reach. This Roman centurion shows us there are none that are beyond the reach of the Lord. And so we we need to make sure that we don't give up on those hard hearts that are in our life. They're not beyond His reach. Let's continue, verse 55 and 56. And many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to Him, were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. A group of ladies from Galilee were there when Jesus died upon the cross, and no doubt it had a great effect upon all of them as well. 
Some of the ladies are mentioned uh, by name. Three, in fact. Mary Magdalene. Okay? Uh, Mary Magdalene was uh, healed by the Lord from evil spirits. Mary, the mother of James and Joseph, uh, of whom the scriptures don't say much about. Okay? We don't really know who she was. Other than that, she was the mother of James and Joseph. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, who we know to be named Salome. Uh, and she was the mother of Jesus' disciples, James and John. These women were there looking on from afar at the lifeless body of Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that each of these ladies were deeply grieved by what they saw. But I want to focus in on just one of the ladies and suggest to you that the sight of Jesus' crucifixion had added meaning to her. Salome. Salome was the mother of Zebedee's sons. She was the wife of a fisherman and the mother of fishermen. I imagine she lived a very simple life. Her two sons had been walking with the Lord for some three years. They were among the first disciples that Jesus selected to come and follow him. These boys of hers left behind their livelihood of fishing and set out to follow the Lord wherever he may lead. And as the ministry of Jesus grew uh, and more and more people sought to be in the presence of the Lord, to hear his teachings, to see his miracles, to be touched by him, to be healed by various illnesses, Salome began to see opportunity for her boys. And she wanted something very special for her boys. And she wanted, to, she wanted to see them succeed. She wanted to see them continue with Jesus to become men of, of prominence, men of influence. And in Matthew chapter 20, she came to Jesus, kneeling down before him with a very special request for her boys. You guys may recall, it's in Matthew chapter 20, verse 21. She said to him, Grant that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on the left in your kingdom. She wanted her boys to be right there at the top with Jesus. One on his right, the other on the left. And Jesus told her something. He answered her and he says, You don't know what you ask. And I know that this is, is speculation, for the scriptures do not tell us what Salome was thinking when she looked upon Jesus being crucified. But I can't help but imagine that this came to her mind. As she looked at the bloodied, bloodied body of Jesus Christ, crucified atop the cross, there were two men beside him, one on his left and one on his right. I imagine that her heart nearly stopped as she realized the truth of Jesus' statement that she did not know what she was asking for. From the, the perspective of Salome, I believe the effect of seeing the Lord crucified upon the cross caused her to be so thankful for unanswered prayers. Have you ever prayed for something? something that you were so confident that it was what was best, so sure that it was what you wanted, only to find out later that it would have been one of the worst possible things to ever happen to you? Unanswered prayers are, are some of the best things that have ever happened to us. And, and technically, though, the, the prayers, they weren't unanswered. Okay? They were answered. The answer was no. 
But sometimes when God says no, we think he's just not answering. We think he's just not listening. God does answer prayer. He just doesn't always answer with a yes. And we ought to be extremely thankful for that. These ladies looking on from afar, they remind us that God knows best. He knows what He is doing. When we think we know what is best and we pray over and over for God to answer our prayers and we don't see Him answering, we can be rest assured that God knows best. We can be thankful for the times when God says, No, you don't know what you're asking. And I'm sure Salome was thankful as she looked upon the cross of Calvary and realized what she was asking for her boys to be on his right and on his left as two criminals were there on his right and left crucified. Verse 57 through 60 says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. Okay. Uh, evening had come, or, or as the Greeks suggest, evening was coming into existence, most likely indicating uh, that the sun was about to go down, but had not yet fallen behind the horizon. And at this time, a man by the name of Joseph showed up on the scene, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Okay, not much is known about this man. This is the first time in the Bible that he's mentioned. Matthew gives us some details that he was uh, a very rich man, Okay, that uh, he was from the city of Arimathea, which it was a Jewish city, and that he had become a disciple of Jesus. Okay? From the other gospel accounts, we find out more information about this man. Okay? Luke tells us that he was a member of the Jewish council, the, the Sanhedrin. And in fact, it tells us that he had not consented to their decision and deed to crucify Jesus Christ. John's gospel tells us that he was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews. And Mark tells us that Joseph had to take courage when he went before Pilate to ask for the body of Jesus. And so we get some more details about this situation. Pilate agreed to give the body of Jesus to Joseph, and Joseph then took the body and wrapped it in clean linen cloth and laid the body of our Lord in a new tomb that was hewn out of the rock. Obviously, it was not damaged by the earthquake like some of the other tombs. Okay? And he rolled a large stone across the opening of the tomb to close it off. Okay? This is a, a great picture, a symbolism here. It's something that we've noted before, but I think worth mentioning just again. Uh, when Jesus was born... There was a man named Joseph that took his baby body and wrapped it in linen cloths and laid it in a borrowed, hewn-out rock. And we talked about how the mangers during that time, they were actually made out of rock. Oftentimes we see them portrayed as wooden. But uh, if you go to Israel, you'll see that out in the shepherd's fields, the mangers were hewn out of rock. Okay? And so it's so very interesting because uh, here at his death, another Joseph has taken his body and wrapped it in linen cloths and laid it in a borrowed, hewn-out rock. So many things about his, his life 
point to his death. Okay? And it truly is amazing to consider all the connections. We don't have time to look at them all today, but it is, there's a plethora of connections between his life and his coming and his death. What I do want to point out here is the, the effect that the cross had upon Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea was a secret disciple of the Lord. He was afraid of what others may think of him or how he would be treated if he let it be known that he was a follower of the Lord. But as he looked upon the cross, Joseph gained the courage that he needed to take a stand for the Lord. Mark tells us that he, had, he took courage. It took courage for him to go. Okay? The same can be true for us. Okay? That when we consider the completed work of the cross, it ought to give us a boldness. It ought to give to us courage <clears throat> to make a stand for the Lord. We don't need to be concerned with what others may think or what others may do if they find out that we're followers of the Lord. We need to be bold. We need to be courageous for the Lord. Verse 61, and Mary and Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. Uh, we'll look closer at these ladies, at what they do in the next chapter because they're going to be very prominent in the opening of chapter 28. So we'll continue uh, looking at them next week. Let's continue verse 62 through 66 and wrap up our time this morning. It says, on the next day which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So, that la so the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. We'll look at some of the details of this next week as well as we look at uh, the ladies and their wondering of how they're going to get past this large stone that's been sealed and a guard that's been set there. But uh, let's look at this real fast. Okay, on, the, on the next day, okay, which was a Sabbath, okay, uh, the chief priests, the Pharisees, they approached Pilate asking that the tomb be made secure until the third day. You know, the hypocrisy of these uh, religious leaders coming to Pilate on the Sabbath, admitting that they knew that he made claim to rise three days uh, after being destroyed is incredible. Remember, that was what they tried to first accuse him of. Oh, he said that he would destroy the temple in three days, but they knew he was talking about his body. There's evidence of it right here. Okay. Who cares? You know, or excuse me. It says here, or at least what they say to Pilate, that they feared the deception that his disciples would try to pull if left unchecked, if, if left unguarded. Okay? But it is plain to me to see that what they really feared was the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. Who really cares if they came and stole the body of Jesus? Think about it. Think that through. If, the, if they come and said, oh, we don't want the disciples to steal the body away and say that he's risen from the dead. Well, there's an easy way to combat that, right? You just say, well, show me the body. Right? That's real simple. Right? All they'd be able to show is a, is a dead corpse if he indeed just died. Right? And so their fear, or, or at least their excuse or their reasoning, really doesn't hold a lot of water. Okay? It would be very easy to, to say, no, he's right there and he's not alive, you know. 
I believe they feared that Jesus could very well resurrect from the dead. And so they wanted to make sure that even if that did happen, that Jesus would be sealed in the tomb, unable to escape. And so they had that large stone that was there, and they put a seal upon it. Oftentimes they would put a wax or something like that, and there would be an imprint upon it, string or things to show that it hadn't been disturbed, all sorts of different things that were being used. But they wanted that thing to be set, secured. No one is getting in. That's how their, their point of view are trying to sell. But I think they were more scared about someone coming out. Pilate agreed to their request and gave them a guard to use to make the tomb secure as they knew how. And, and although there are a couple different things we could point out here regarding the actions of uh, the Pharisees and the chief priests for time's sake, I, I just want to make a simple observation here, okay? Even though Christ had completed the work that he had come to do, and and through it we obtained a great victory over death, the enemy will still try whatever he can to oppose the work of God. You and I stand in victory. We've won. Those who are in Christ, the, the victory has been obtained for us. We don't fight for victory, we fight from victory. But let me tell you this, just because we have victory doesn't mean the enemy is going to give up and stop fighting. Yeah, he's ultimately going to lose and our victory is secure, but know that he won't stop fighting until the end. And so we have to realize that there's a battle that goes, around, goes on all around us. And we need to be prepared for that battle. The enemy wants to, to, to try and oppose the Lord and oppose anything that the Lord wants to do. Even though victory had been won upon the cross, it was finished as he cried out, Tetelestai, upon the cross. They're still working. They're still trying to oppose Jesus Christ and God's workings upon the earth. And it still happens today. Okay? The enemy of our souls does not want us being used by the Lord, does not want us to be uh, affecting the kingdom of God. And so we want to be just aware of that and prepared. Amen? Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, just the, the truths that we glean from it, uh, the, the rich symbols as we think of the veil and, and all that symbolized, how access to you has been granted to us. Thank you so much. Lord, that it's no longer through the the blood of bulls and goats that didn't last and had to become over year after year after year, continuing to offer up these sacrifices that did not have lasting effect. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whose death upon the cross gives us victory. It gives to us uh, an assurance of that victory over the grave and victory uh, over... uh, just that we will have resurrected life, that we will be resurrected, Lord, that we will be, uh, have life eternal because of what you've done. Lord, may we find ourselves just in awe. Lord, I imagine that as I think of the centurion, he found himself in awe and quite fearful uh, of you and, and was able to understand and, and get a glimpse of, of who you are, as he said, truly, This was the Son of God. Lord, truly you are the Son of God. And we want to worship you with our lives. We want to surrender our lives to you. We want to be used by you, Lord. And we ask that you would just continue to do a work in our lives. Lead us, guide us, mold us, shape us, use us for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name.
Amen.